Today on Inside the Ropes, right before she goes to speak to the United Nations, we're joined by Liz Broderick to talk all about male champions of change and what it can do to golf. We also chat to Matt Griffin, who's got a lot to say, and all the good things, by the way, about the state of golf in Australia and Japan. Let's go. You're listening to Inside the Ropes, Australia's must-listen-to golf show with exclusive content from both home and abroad. Subscribe through your favourite podcast app or listen at golf.org.au. Welcome to Inside the Ropes, episode number 183. As you can already tell, uh, Andy Ma has gone down with the ship. He's no longer with us. Um, So Mark Hayes talking to you here as we delve into our 183rd episode, and I'm joined by Martin Blake, who's been rushed back into the play. He's Mr. September, really. It's sort of finals time, and we've called on the Chief, so it's no surprise that in the crunch time we turn to you. Martin Blake, welcome along. Hello, Hazy. Who's that guy, Clark Keating, from the Brisbane Lions, who used to just hack around all year and then turn up at the finals? That's right. Straight off the bench, and good to see you. You too, and maybe Reggie Jackson if you're a baseball fan, I'm not sure, but you're definitely Mr. September for us, so thank you for joining us. Andy, for those no wondering, he's gone on to sort of additional duties, uh, even to his normal manic life. He's doing front bar deluxe sort of episodes, and he's also calling the Southern Stars in their series with the Kiwis in the limited overs with his cricket. So uh, we'll have him back soon, but I'm not 100% sure that uh, we'll hear his voice for a couple of weeks, but we'll see how we go. Now, Normally, Blakey, I'd go to sort of fairly great length to suck up to one of our guests today, who's the interim chief ex- executive of Golf Australia, Rob Armour. But I'm afraid that he's going to play sort of a distant second fiddle to a very special person we're having later on in the podcast today. Arguably, chief, the most important figure we've ever had on this program. And that's ranking right up with the likes of Gary Player and even Mike Clayton, would you believe? I think she's got a... She's Adam got a Scott, etc. Uh, no, this is a... Even more important than Scotty, which is hard to believe. We're very excited, uh, Blakey, to have Liz Broderick aboard a little later on. She's Australia's longest-serving sex discrimination commissioner, uh, but more recently is the founder of one of the most important movements in not only sport but all facets of Australian life. It's called Male Champions of Change. Uh, She will join us to talk through uh, that today from a golf perspective. Um, But, Blakey, just so you understand her influence and why we're excited to have her on, she's actually... Uh, currently the Chair Rapporteur, it's called, of the United Nations. And she's working uh, on a group um, around discrimination against women and girls. And she's actually uh, appearing in front of the United Nations later on today. So we're, we just have to scramble our wow. time around her availability. So, yeah, pretty, impos- pretty impressive stuff, actually. Um, mm. And look, no offence, because this all brings me to our first guest, who normally doesn't bow to too many, but I'm afraid today... There might be a slight exception given Liz's resume, and I speak of a long-standing friend of the podcast who, luckily enough for us, is still stranded here in Melbourne. Unlucky for him, obviously, but he had nowhere to really escape to when I put the hard word on him yesterday. So we welcome the one and only Matt Griffin back to the show. Matt, welcome aboard. Good morning, guys. Griffo, great to talk to you. Um, uh, just hate to use the word stranded, which is probably pretty appropriate, but... Uh, I was reading your tweets last night and you were saying that, uh, you, you know, you, you normally play on the Japanese tour, which hasn't been happening at all of recent times. And uh, you mentioned that uh, the season's over for you. So you're officially unemployed. Yes. Yeah, not been nice. unemployed. No, not, not ideal. Thankfully, getting a little bit of government support, but we're going to take it when we can get it. Uh, yeah, well, 
when I finished the New Zealand Open in February this earlier this year, I didn't think that would be my last tournament of the year, but it's it's turned out that way. We we had hoped about through the middle of the year we had hoped there'd be a decent Japan schedule to finish the year and we'd be able to get up there, but with their government having a really hard border on any foreigners uh, and also them losing a lot of events due to the COVID environment, uh, it's it's all just slowly dripped away and. They do have three events to finish the year, but they've told us that if we are to go up there, we have to spend two weeks locked in a Japanese hotel before competing. So made the pretty easy decision to uh, not do that. So just don't, as much as it would be nice those, to get up there and play a little bit of golf, it's uh, not going to work. Those Japanese hotels are not, not known for being that big either, are they? Tiny no. little shoe boxes. Yeah, so I'm sure... Quite, Hotel quarantine in Australia is hard enough in a in a decent sized hotel room, let alone a one that's not much bigger than your small bathroom. So, uh, so yeah. Maddie, what? How does that uh, pan out for for you as a professional player? I mean, I I looked up. You made thirty eight million yen last year on the Japanese tour, which was inside the top thirty. That equates to about five hundred thousand of our dollars. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, you've just lost that income this year. How do you how do you kind of survive? You've, you've got you and your wife Liz have got a young young son Jack. Um, how does that pan out in your life? Yeah, I guess I mean it's really difficult. We're we're fortunate. Liz is Liz is working and and fortunately, I guess having played well over the last few years, we're it's, it's not a financially we're fine. So that's so that's good. It does. Being up to turn 37 this year, I feel like I'm in the prime of my career. So as a sportsman, to lose basically a whole year of that is is really difficult. And you go from making a really good income to basically nothing. So that's 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 extremely hard. The I mean, the great part about it has been that I've been able to spend the time with Jack in he's now 15 months. So it's been a really special time to be able to get that family time. But it does it does make it's very difficult professionally, and and the other question you just don't know is having having nine months off where where your game will be when when you do get back to it, and and being stuck in Melbourne where we're not allowed to play golf, it, it makes it even even harder. So what are you you working in a net? Uh, what are you doing to keep keep sharp? Yeah, working in a net and and just trying to do as much sort of online with my with my coach and uh, and that to to try and keep things going. Working a little bit. In in the I've got a few weights here that just working on the body and and really just trying to freshen up and and hopefully once restrictions ease we're hoping in about three weeks time from now then then I'll I'll look to probably put in a really good preseason and and head to head full steam ahead into what hopefully will be a good Aussie summer of golf. Now you're not into doing the Bryson DeChambeau stuff, are you? With the weights? No, no, on a bit of bulk. <laughs> I've worked in the gym for probably the last fifteen, twenty years, and I haven't put on a huge amount. So just, I'm, I'm definitely not in the in the Bryson mould, but just trying to, you know, I guess, build build as much as you can. And it's probably as much rather than trying to put on size, it's more trying to maintain those muscles, your golfing muscles that you do use. And uh, we we have sort of with with my co- coaches and uh, a trainer and osteo, we've sort of put together a bit of a program to hopefully fix a few swing issues. So when when we do end up out of this, hopefully my game's in a, in a bit better shape. 
So, Matty, the one of the reasons we have you on semi-regularly, we're really grateful for your time, as always, is you know, you've know you got some great thoughts on the on all sides of the game, not just the playing side or your own uh, place in it, but the I guess the future of the game and also the politics, which we might talk to you a bit about later. But Blakey mentions Bryson DeChambeau then, and last week, uh, I'm sure you were listening to the podcast, but we were... Uh, we invited a lot of uh, comments in on social media about Bryson DeChambeau uh, just to get people's feedback because Andy and I were, I think, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think actually for once in lockstep about not criticising Bryson DeChambeau for his own magnificent result there, but questioning perhaps the the direction of the game. Um, In my mind, and this is what I want to ask you firstly before I go into some of the uh, interactions from our listeners. Um, he did what he did within the spirit and the rules of the game. Uh, he's just taking advantage of what's on the table. That the pressure probably should be on the game's administrators to make sure that golf doesn't get off the rails. Yeah, a hundred percent. And Bryson should be commended on what he's been able to do. Is as in all in all sport, it's about pushing the boundaries of of what you're allowed to do. And and he's in all the work that he's done and he's been able to figure out a way that he can and really dominate the golf courses by hitting the ball a long way and uh, that's that that should be all, all credit to Bryson and it's been really effective for him he's played since sort of the resumption of golf from the PJ Tour he's played some amazing golf and really to win a US Open around a course like Wingfoot by the margin he did shows how dominant dominant he was and uh, with as long as the rules do the same. I'm sure there'll be more and more golfers around that that will do do what he's done. So it's it's a real point where do we keep going the way we are, or do the it, those responsible for golf on a worldwide scale do, do they step in and and say we we need to do we do need to do something? Well, maybe before I get your thoughts on exactly the question that you just posed there, I'll run by a bit of the. Uh, feedback we got on social media um, and get your thoughts as as, as you see fit. Um, I think this is a good aspect to do the show here. Uh, John Shepherd on Twitter uh, goes, I'm not so keen on the anti-Bryson bias, which I hope we didn't display, but he thinks we did, which is fine. Uh, the question for him is, not long distances, but soft manicured US courses. How do you think Bryson would fare in the sand belt in late summer? Uh, I'd say he'd do, he'd do, he'd do really well. It, it it, having the soft soft courses does does make it easier to I guess you can hit it anywhere and still get it on the green. But he's hitting it so far. If he came down to the sand belt, I'm just thinking of Victoria Golf Golf Club where I'm a member at. He'd be having pitch shots into pretty much any hole. And, and when you get that far down, I guess the concept of what Bryson's doing is when he hits the fairway, he's got a basically a pitch and a putt for birdie. But when he does hit it a little bit offline, he's a little bit out of position, but he's able to get it on the green or near to the green and have an easy up and down. So he's not punished by straying offline, I guess, by hitting it as close to the green as he is. Uh, so another listener, D. Wayne or Dwayne, I'm not 100% sure, apologies, but D. Wayne Hogan, uh, he said, just listening to the episode, walking the streets of Melbourne, dreaming of playing, which is fair enough and we sympathise. Uh, 100% agree with the pace of play uh, criticism that we leveled at the US Open. Watching Reed and DeChambeau, it's so frustrating. The men's game is just not comp- comparable to me. The women's game is more relatable. Do you see that, Matty? Do you, do you understand why people have that opinion? Oh, for sure. And and for your average golfer out there, they the women hit it at a closer 
distance to what to what they they will. I mean, most of the women probably hit it further than your average male male golfer. They they play such good golf these days, and it, it is a more comparable game. And the more probably the question around what's been happening is that golf's gone from a yes, you wanted to have the power like someone like Norman did in the early nineties, but you also needed the finesse and and the strategy around the golf course, whereas. It's now turning basically purely into just a smash it, which and and that's a question. Some pe- I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that like watching that, but there are also a lot of people that don't like watching that. And and then we, the great part about golf is the golf courses that we have. And if you play a course like Wingfoot and there are would have hit it up near the green, it ruins the strategy of that. So it'd be much more interesting watching the women play the same golf course and play it the way. I guess the designer intended it to play. Just a theory on this, Matty. I, I have a feeling that this might end up being good for the game, uh, just because it's going to attract the attention and create the discussion that we've been having since Deschambeau won that event. Because uh, it feels like a bit of a turning point. Do you? Do you can you see that? Yeah, I, I agree. And for so long, you look at the U.S. Open was seen as the you had to hit it straight beyond the fairway. But last, a couple of weeks ago at the US Open with Matt Wolf and DeChambeau basically dominating the tournament, they showed that it really had turned into just a, a bash it and, and find it and and play from there. So I, I agree with you. I think it, it, it really is a point in time where there's two ways that they can go and it's up to the, the administrators to decide which way they want to do it. So there's a, another... A couple of bits of feedback here from a gentleman called Scott Blenko. Uh, he says, I wondered what the best way to, to roll the roll back the ball is. To my mind, to stop any legal mess, why not just have two sets of ball categories, amateur and tour professional, and increase the minimum size of the tour ball? That way you could still see a version of the tiger ball, for want of a better saying here. Um, and you'd maybe even get the factors of increased wind resistance. And later on he asked... Um, about the long putter, maybe it should be illegal because it's anchoring, which was banned, or illegal because golf should be hands-on, uh, hands-only, so broomstick anchoring should never have been legal. Um, does that go any way to sort of linking up to what you were just saying, do you think, Matty? Yeah, I think all of those points would help, and especially uh, on the on the putting, it, it, putting's the one game that you don't have to have two hands on the club, I guess. You, you can anchor it and do all these not not anchor it, but almost the arm arm locks that they have and this that type of thing. Whereas if they made it the shortest club in the bag, then that pretty simply fixes that problem. Uh, and then um, there's smarter minds of mine that know the best way to manage the game. But having, I guess, uh, bifurcated rules that means the pros find different rules to your regular amateur because the regular amateur really isn't affected by this. So uh, probably is the is the best way to go. And and then. If, if it was to have a regulated ball, maybe that's the, the best way to do it, similar to the way they do it, uh, the majors in tennis. Uh, that seems like a pretty reasonable idea to me. Blake, I'm going to ask you this question, which came from Glenn Barnes um, in reference to Bryson again. In the 97 Masters or the 2000 US Open, the, the golf world was worried what Tiger would do or, or maybe they were just simply in awe, he asks. How much of this current situation is a silly social media beat-up what Tiger has done was unprecedented, and he was hailed for it. Look, um, Hazy, it was. Th- there are similarities in what Tiger was doing because 
Tiger missed a lot of fairways, didn't he? You know, he blasted away, hit it a long way. So it's it's a very similar thing, and it's another, but it feels like another turning point. That that's what I would say. I, I just think it's not a, a social media beat up when when he can you know win a U.S. Open by by six shots using that method. He's as Rory McIlroy said, he's taken advantage of what what the ball does, and he's extremely skillful and very good at what he does. He's got a great short game, which everyone sort of tends to forget, and. Uh, He's, he's changed the game. So I think that it's going to help uh, make some... Cha- you know, the authorities have a very close look at this, not before so time. Let me just whip through the last couple of um, responses we had here. Ed Holmes, uh, who's concerned about Bryson's win, that there's a lack of strategy and choice made by players off the tee, uh, lack of using different clubs. It's driver and chipping, as you both have mentioned. Um, the smashing gouge is boring, and putting technique should be illegal. Sandy, I'm not sure of the surname, but the Twitter handle was Cass Frank. Uh, love the show. Agree with your views. PGA Tour should penalise slow pay play. Putter should be the shortest club in the bag. Uh, Bryson might have been the best player, but he was unenjoyable to watch. Too stiff and robotic. Um, there's a question here. I'm, I, I was not sure whether I should mention this or not, but I think I will. Um, Steve Jensen, Reed DeChambeau. Was he ever drug tested? As a health professional, I believe diet and weight training to bulk up that much that quickly defies normal human physiology. If this is the new normal and what young pros aspire to, you need a wider caravan at every PGA Tour event. Uh, I'm not sure of the um, you know, implication of Bryson doing something illegal. I think he's very much on the proteins. He's made no secret about what he's doing there. Um, and then, Maddie, just I might actually uh, finish up with a, a friend of, of, of all of ours. Uh, Ryan Lynch chimed in. Um, a touring pro alongside yourself on the Australian tour. And Lynchy said, hitting an eight iron 200 metres plus was never supposed to be the most, most important skill in the game, but it is now. Bryson has perfectly, perfectly exploited the direction of the game and where it's heading. Distance and power will triumph over accuracy and finesse. For that, he should be congratulated. Uh, he said, considerations are a must. And I asked him about that and he said, um, just around re- regulating equipment, which is what we were just talking about. And then he was questioned by another punter on Twitter, Scott Cairns, about Bryson's short game. And Lynchy said, uh, a very well-earned and well des- very deserving champion. His distance has come from hard work too, not knocking him in any way. In fact, I'm applauding him, just questioning what the next generation of golfer will look like with 340-yard drives a must to make a quid. Have you got any thoughts on that, Matty? I think that's really pertinent. Yeah, I, d- I definitely. It's, uh, Lynchy's nailed it there. It, it, it does question where... Where the where the game ends up, and all growing up as kids, and 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 golf is is such a great game because it has so many different facets. It's being able to drive the ball straight with length, and and being able to have hit good long irons and and good short irons, good chipping, good pitching, and and the way the game is evolving. If it continues to evolve the way it is, you basically take out all the long irons, you take out your mid your mid irons, a lot of a lot of different parts of the game. So we've got to be really careful that that doesn't that doesn't happen. Bryson's done an incredible job to do what he has, but whether whether that's what people will want to watch golf going in the future is a is a big question and also play it. Uh, so it's it's a big question for the game at the moment as as to where where we go from here. As I said, Hazy, it's it's a good uh, it's a good thing for the game because people will now talk about it, they'll look at it, they'll analyse it. Uh, people in authority, people with power. Uh, what he's done 
it takes so much guts to stand up in a US Open and just blast away with the driver when the rough is that thick. That You've got to admire that. Um, but uh, it's not his fault that this has happened. He's just taken advantage of what's there. And it's what's there that we need to look at. Well said, I think, Chief. And I think that applies to most modern sports. If you were to look at um, Australian football, I don't think that what um, Alistair Clarkson's done, for example, has necessarily made the game easier to watch or more pretty, but it was extremely effective when it was first implemented. And I think Bryson's at the front of the curve here in the golfing sense. And I agree for what it's worth. And I, I assume, Matt, that you would like to see um, the tours and the and the governing bodies, the RNA and the USGA, take a you know a, a action sooner than later. Yeah, I I, I think so. I, for for the game, I I personally and I know a lot of people are like this in that golf's great because of the golf courses that you play. And if you if we continue down the same path, all the great golf all the great golf courses that are there now will become irrelevant or, or less less enjoyable to play. There's been plenty of courses that we can't play now because the game's overtaken them. Uh, and it's really important that we harness those. You, you take baseball, for the example, they they had the aluminium bats that came in and they outlawed those because basically the home run became obsolete or everyone could do it, so it wasn't so important. So they didn't go and change the stadiums to make them bigger. Bulldozer, which would have cost millions upon millions of dollars, they they address the equipment issues. So hope, hopefully we're at the point where golf needs to look at look at doing the same. Well said. Uh, Blakey and Matt, will stick with us if you don't mind, both of you. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here and we're going to come back and talk more domestically. But it's a big thank you to everyone. There were heaps more that I didn't have time to get to, but all the feedback we, we really appreciate on Inside the Underscore Ropes on Twitter. And it's, uh, it's hopefully... You can see that we do take notice of it all and, and, and pass it on. So thank you all. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. And on the other side of this, we're going to come back and, and ask Matt Griffin's thoughts on some really pressing domestic matters in Australian golf. Let's go back Inside the Ropes with Golf Australia. Welcome back to Inside the Ropes. Still with us, Martin Blake and Matt Griffin. Um, Matty, we really appreciate your time as ever, uh, I'm not sure if you saw this morning, there was a, re- a release, we're recording this on Wednesday morning, um, but there's a, a new report just out today uh, that despite the impacts of COVID-19, that rounds played around Australia are booming. That obviously doesn't, that it factors in uh, Victoria. Um, if you take Victoria out, uh, there's a huge surge in golf, which is fantastic news um, for all in the industry, particularly those clubs outside Victoria who are really thriving at the moment. Uh, More importantly, um, for men and women between the ages of 22 and 49, rounds are up in the vicinity of 20% year on year, which is phenomenal and that presents a big opportunity for the sport to cash in on on a market it's been unable to do so for years and years. So a little bright note there, Um, but Matty, it comes on the back of, well, some pretty pretty harrowing times to be honest because not only have we been um, neglected the Victorian metropolitan market neglected uh, to be able to play which is fine there's medical reasoning etc I assume behind that Um, this week there was no sort of bone thrown towards golfers in Melbourne which is unfortunate but also at the same time there's been a few reports in the media about 
the attacks on, I guess, local community courses, public courses, particularly the Northcote Golf Course in the northern suburbs of Melbourne. I know you've got really strong views on the importance of community golf and public golf courses, not only in Victoria, but right around the country and, and where you see the future of that and what, what the game should be doing again. Yeah, uh, well, firstly, that news is great that rounds are up around the country and especially in that demographic that's probably been less represented over the last few years. And it does show that in this current environment, golf's really become attractive again. And I, I noticed that in the period where we were able to play golf uh, in Melbourne, that there are a lot of different, non, I guess, non-stereotypical people playing golf, which was, was really good for the game. But uh, yeah, I, in reading that article that was in The Age during the week, it, it it really is a bit of a scary time for golf because there are there are a lot of with people having access to golf golf course as well as no golf play there there is now a lot of people in the community saying that we should have these places purely for public parks and it, it has happened at courses like Elstonwick and uh, as probably a couple of others around the country so it's a really a really important time that golf needs to stand up for itself because if we don't then then uh, we'll we'll lose courses that are the founding blocks of, blocks of our game. Hazy, just uh, the background to that for the listeners who live outside of Melbourne. Um, uh, what happened at Northcote was that the fences were pushed down by some people who kept walking past seeing the empty golf course and they were going in there and having picnics. So the club ended up saying, okay, it's fine. So they, they left the hole in the fence open and people have been using it. Of course, they like it. And uh, Griffo, I live near the uh, Malvern Valley Golf Course in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, and that's exactly the same. It's a public par- uh, parcel of land, so people have gradually realised that they can walk out on the course and it's not dangerous because there's no golf here. So, uh, you know, and of course they like it. So it, it's, I don't know, it's kind of dangerous. But then again, uh, St Andrews, the home of golf, people are allowed to walk out on that at certain times, aren't they? So uh, I feel like. You know, we, we should be able to compromise in some small way here within uh, the context that it's dangerous for people to go. Uh, from a health and safety point of view, it's too dangerous to let people wander anywhere on a golf course, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. You can't have people walking through the, through the middle of the course. And uh, I, being a long-time member at Cheltenham Golf Club, it, that's been a public park for 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 forever and a day and that that works well there's sort of trails around the edge edge of the golf course so that's that seems to work so it, probably if they are going to open the courses up for more public access they need to need to do that and and that's similar at St Andrews in that you can walk around but during when when golfers play there's not people walking up and down the fairways and, and that type of thing and and golf especially in in Scotland there's golf is such a highly respected game that that people that uh, I guess the people in the public park and, and golfers interact interact well. Feels like we need to find some middle ground. I noticed, Hazy, that Magda Zabanski had a little bit of a crack about this as well on Twitter, um, the comedian who, who said that, you know, we need to open up uh, the golf courses. They take up too much space. But in a place like Melbourne, we, we, there's a lot of parkland in Melbourne and um, most places in Australia, you know, we, we're not short of space. So um, I would think that, we need to find some middle ground here, Hazy. It's um, it's kind of there's a broader issue here, isn't there, about the use of um, public land for golf? I noticed that during the week, Marrickville Golf Club in Sydney 
as sort of dodged a bullet, they were going to be reduced to, to nine holes by, by the local council and they've changed their mind and it's going to remain at 18. But there have been a number of other golf courses right around Australia who've been under threat from uh, either developers wanting to come in and, and make it into real estate or, or whatever. It's, it's, a, it's a, something that jo- jumps up all the time for Golf Australia. It does, um, and there's a lot of sentiment around that Golf Australia is not doing anything about it, which is uh, strictly not true. It, it's just um, it's the, often the advocacy goes on behind closed doors, which is you know the I guess the relevant place for it. Um, but you're right, we've you know got more parks under threat in Sydney. Victoria Park is um, basically a done deal to be changed forever in Brisbane. Um, you know there were there are attacks on clubs in in Perth, right around the country, and not just in the capital cities either. So uh, it, it's it's paramount here, and I'm, Matty, I'm sure that you're going to say something similar to me about Magda Zabanski and Sam Newman. That that anyone thinks that Sam Newman is advocating on behalf of the sport is patently ridiculous. Um, but Magda Zabanski's jumped in there, and she's got a quite a big following. And I, I generally admire what she says, but she's uh, she's tarred us all with the same brush here, and, and 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 she's trying to rally the people who don't care about golf. Golf's a really strong advocate for the um, for the environment, for the mental well-being, the social well-being of all people. Um, it, it, we've got to be really careful here, and, and as an industry, don't we? Yeah, yeah, we do. And and unfortunately, through and and Sam, 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 and and he's he wants to get out of the golf course, but unfortunately, with this COVID, he's sort of become almost a indirect spokesperson for the game, and and it's prob- and that drops in all, all the stereotypes on golf. And what we, as a game, need to do, I, I feel, is is better promote what golf is and the benefits that it provides. It's it's a game for life. That people of any any stature can play it. You look at Northcote Golf Course, for nine holes, it's $21.50 or something like that, that you can't get much better entertainment for two and a half, three hours for that. So it's a relatively cheap game. It's the health and social benefits for everyone, especially in COVID times when we do get out. It's a great way for for everyone to to communicate and and, and do those things. And if if we if we don't change these preconceptions about golf, then the game more and more of these courses will be will be taken up. I couldn't agree with you more. And and, and I think one of the big challenges confronting Golf Australia and and all in the golf industry, the PGA, the ALPG, everyone involved, is to get away from this notion that the sport is about rich, uh, old white men, which no doubt there's a share of uh, that demographic in our population. There's, There's no, in the golfing population, there's no doubt about that. But the vast majority of now nowadays are working class people who belong to less elite clubs. Just we tend to talk about the elite clubs in tournament terms. Um, but I, I, do you guys agree with that, Blakey, Matty? I, I think that we've got a huge image problem in that the rank and file non-golfer in the community seems to think that uh, it's a game of privilege, where in reality it's it's very much a working class game. Well, unfortunately, Hazy, the uh, yeah, the people who are kind of regarded as the golf people by the non-golf people are people like Donald Trump and yeah. Sam Newman. So it's not a great look for us at the moment when they're the you know two two of the more prominent 
golfers around the world, if you like. So, uh, look, we've, we've got a battle on our hands at Golf Australia and the other, you know, as a golf industry uh, with this because people are looking at the land. Uh, it's been going on for a few years now and uh, I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to have parkland without golf. I mean, I, I love walking the park as much as anyone else, but uh, we, we do have to protect ourselves a bit. And it's funny, Matt, that you said, as I throw to you, about the value of golf, you know, and it just happens to be that the RNA put out a, a survey today or an, an international um, document that they've put out around this. Uh, and I'll read a little bit of it to you. It's uh, a research study backed by the RNA with a couple of universities in, in the US and uh, in Britain as well, which has come back with a finding which won't really surprise any of us, but it's saying that for older people, um, Golf is tremendous for balance and muscle strength and, you know, just uh, provides real benefits for people who are, you know, a, a bit of a more of a senior age. So um, there's some of that on our website today, Golf Australia website, if you want to read it. But um, it just confirms what you would have thought, the, the game for life, Matty. Yeah, 100%. It's, it's such an important thing for, and it keeps people engaged whether they're living at home or it's a chance for them to get out and, and, mi and mix and go in the clubhouse afterwards and have a beer and, and just spend that time on the golf course and, and use their body to keep, keep active. And I think golf is very much treated on an economics basis all, all the time instead of it's not harnessed in for the social benefit that it provides and the physical benefit pe for people. Councils are willing to spend tens of millions of dollars on building a rec centre but the golf courses the public courses especially sort of tend to rot away and are just there for I guess keeping keeping a bit of money coming in I look at the example of Yarra Bend and the guys out there have done such a such a great job investing in it and it's really become a real community hub there's mini golf there so the young kids can get there they have a lot of active lessons among people and i know they've got a lot of other things planned out there so it's a really good thing for the community to have that and if we can do that in more of more of those those courses then then hopefully uh we, we won't we won't lose them and maddie you mentioned cheltenham before as your you know original home ground for want of a better term there would be around australia i would imagine a vast 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 majority of young people who had their first hit, not at a Royal Sydney or a Kuyonga or anything like that, but at a public course. And had they not had that experience, the future of the game doesn't look nearly as bright. No, no, it doesn't doesn't at all. And I was lucky enough to grow up, growing up in Bo Morris, we had a number of public courses around. So I played a lot of golf at Cheltenham, Sandringham, Moorabbin, Elstonwick uh, growing up. Now two of those are gone. Moorabbin and Elstonwick have been been taken up for one for a park and one for office buildings and, and so on. Uh, so it's a really important building block. And a lot of my friends that are in golf all started at public courses. And I look back to myself, my father wasn't a, me a member at a, a golf course. So if we didn't have those public ac access courses, I'd, I'm not sure I'd even, even play the game. So it's a, it's a really important founding block for the game that if we lose the public courses, then we'll have one, less people playing, less players that can be members of golf clubs and, and it just feeds all the way through the system. What do we do, Matty? What, what do you think is the most important thing for us to do as an industry, as Golf Australia, as the PGA, everyone? 
I think it's to have a it's to have a voice. We need to advocate for golf and talk about all the great things that that it does provide and, and, and probably speak up a little bit more when when we do come under attack, similar to what has happened since that article has come out and we need people to advocate for the game and and stand up for for what it, what it stands for and the benefits it provides for the community. Yeah, it's it's. Um, I think that's the crux of the matter, Blakey. You, you and I have been talking about this and how to respond in in media circles. Uh, it's it's a tough situation because there's a lot of delicate advocacy goes on in the back rooms. But I think Maddie's 100% right in my opinion that if we don't speak up now, we may not have much to speak up about later. We have to keep public golf. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know where that leaves us, Matty. Is there something else you want to put on the table about the politics of the sport at the moment? I mean, it just seems so much going on, on on so many levels. Yeah, there's a lot. And, and I don't think there's any more to add, really. I, I just I think the most important thing is, is golfers and as an industry and, and people involved in the industry, we just need to stand up and, and, and have a stance and, and, and really advocate for the game that we all love. Griffo, before you go, what's your? Uh, when will you get back to Japan? And uh, I did neglect to offer you, uh, ask you earlier about the order of merit situation because um, you, you clearly you've earned no money this year. Are they extending it into next year, or how does that work? Does it does it threaten your playing rights? Yes, they they decided uh, midway through the year when they hoped to have a decent schedule this year that they would extend the schedule to the end of twenty twenty one. So. Hopefully, if the world is in a better place come April next year, I'll be able to go back up for the start of the 2021 schedule. The hard part. But you will moment, start from zero. But I'll start from zero. Yeah. So the hard part is we're missing the six events on the schedule this year that none of the pretty much none of the foreign players will be able to play. So we're starting essentially. I guess well, well, if you look at an AFL season, we're starting at round six without being able to play in the first five rounds. So it's probably uh, yeah. Well, it'll be. We're hoping that sense, common sense will maybe prevail, and we'll be able to get a better outcome on that. But if if not, then I'll we'll just have to go up and put in a big summer and make sure we uh, go and win all their tournaments. <laughs> that seems a simple plan. Maybe just go and win their tournaments. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if if you're not going to get the right outcome for you, well, you just got to practice harder and uh, and uh, make them pay for it. So it's a good it's good motivation. Uh, Matt Griffin, always a breath of fresh air here. And I really admire your willingness to put an opinion on the table on so many different matters. We really appreciate it. Sometimes it doesn't um, concur with ours, but I, that doesn't that simply does not matter. It's just great to hear your voice. And uh, um, we appreciate you speaking up on matters that are so important to the future of the game. Uh, thanks for having us on. And it's great to have a, a show that uh, is out there advocating for golf. Thank you very much. Matt Griffin, hopefully next time we hear from him, he's won a couple of those Japanese tour events. Thanks for joining us, Matty. We'll come back on the other side of this break with an incredibly special guest, not only the Chief Executive, Acting Chief Executive Officer of Golf Australia, but uh, a United Nations speaker, Blakey. I speak of Liz Broderick. We'll chat with her in just a minute. Let's go back inside the ropes with Golf Australia. Welcome back to Inside the Ropes. And Blakey, look, I have to admit, I'm feeling a little bit nervous here. We've talked to some golfing luminaries, but never as I, I uh, sort of said to you earlier on that we've had someone of this sort of caliber and, and, and 
Oh, I guess, I, to be honest with you, standing in the community, because we can we can talk all we want about uh, Gary Player or Mike Clayton, etc., but we really haven't had anyone of this note come on. I really, uh, I can't thank her enough for sparing her time. Uh, Liz Broderick, welcome along. Thanks very much, Mark, and a big introduction. I hope I'm not a disappointment. Uh, there's no chance you're going to disappoint. I'll go through your resume a little bit for, the, for our listeners in a second. And I don't like having to make you second fiddle, Rob, but Rob Armour, the acting chief executive <laughs> officer of Golf Australia, is also joining us. I can't believe, Rob, that I'm giving you such short shrift here. No, all good. I think it's well-deserved, Mark. So uh, um, I'm just as excited as you are to have Liz join our podcast. Yeah, it's really fantastic. Now, for those who are unaware, um, just, I won't do this and embarrass you, Liz, for too long, but... Liz Broderick is the longest serving uh, sex discrimination commissioner in Australian history um, and has since left that role to start up the very thing that we're going to talk about today, which is the Male Champions of Change program. Um, but Blakey, before we do talk to Liz, I'm not sure if you're aware, but she's, uh, well, she's put a little thing called the United Nations on hold here uh, to come and talk to Inside the Ropes, which is pretty impressive. Uh, Liz is the current... Um, special rapporteur for uh, the UN's working group on discrimination against women and girls. So it's a pretty, it's a great honor for us to have her here before she appears in front of the General Assembly in New York tomorrow. Thanks I hope, much, uh, Liz, that we're not, excuse me, Liz, <laughs> sorry. Uh, I hope we're not holding up the UN uh, General Assembly with this interview, are we? <laughs> Hopefully not. No, no, we're not. But um, it should be fun. Uh, but I'm absolutely delighted to be here um, with you both. Thanks so much. So Male Champions of Change, Liz, it's, it's a passion of yours, isn't it? And it's something that's not only important in golf, but in a more broader communal sense as well. Absolutely. And it kind of came about because as in the introduction, as you said, when I um, was a sex discrimination commissioner, I started to understand that if we want to create greater levels of gender equality, not just in sport, but really across the nation, then we needed to work both men and women together. So that really was the genesis of the Male Champions of Change. And I, from, what, from my limited understanding of this, and, and Rob and Martin can, can uh, put me on the straight and narrow here along with yourself, it's been well received um, in, in, in a lot of different areas, particularly in sporting circles in Australia, is something that we all should get behind. Yeah, um, I, that's exactly right, because where we've come to with sport, um, then, Mark, is so we have the 20 most powerful men in sport. So they are men that lead um, national sporting organisations from golf to cricket to tennis to um, union and league and AFL um, and indeed um, there are a number of female CEOs as well. So we all come together to share experiences and strategies about how to make our sports more gender equal from the very gender equal sports like tennis on one hand um, through to some of the more male dominated sports like um, like rugby for example and, and the NRL. So we come together, we share our strategies, um, we engage closely with each other and we really act on the premise that no one of us acting individually will ever be as good as all of us acting together to shift sport and make it more gender equal. 
Liz, it's interesting you say about coming together like that, because I know that when you started this, there was some criticism, wasn't there, that people were saying, well, why, why are you involving the men in this? Why are you giving the men uh, the chance to take the credit, if you like? So um, yeah, that's it's taken a little while to bed down, hasn't it? You're absolutely right on that. And, you know, there were some who thought it was about a reinforcement of a patriarchy almost. But I think it, once you start to understand that gender equality is about the redistribution of power, whether it's in a family or a sector like sport or indeed in the nation. So if you want to redistribute power, you need to work with those who hold power. And that the levers of power largely, although not exclusively, sit in the hands of men. So if we want to create change on gender equality, we need men taking the message of gender equality to other men. And I think more and more we've realised that that's been a missing part of the strategy that we've had here in Australia. So we need, if we want to accelerate change, we need to amp up on men's participation with us. And that, that goes for golf as well. So, Rob, from a, from a golf perspective, um, um, that has to appeal with everything that Golf Australia is running alongside the Vision 2025 strategy. Um, but more importantly, I think, just on a, on a common sense approach towards the future. Yeah, absolutely, Mark. I couldn't agree more. It, it's uh, completely in line with, with our strategic priorities and, in particular, you know, the Vision 2025 uh, strategy, which is our women and girls strategy and getting... Um, you know, more uh, females into the game, enjoying the game and, you know, having clubs, you know, set up an environment that, that helps foster that. Blakey, I, I, before I, I get um, an opinion from Liz on what I'm about to ask you, you sat through a, I guess, a seminar, in, for want of a better word, in terms of empowering media to act more knowledgeably around coverage of women's sport um, I figure, and I'll get your opinion on this in a second, Liz, if you don't mind, that you learned a lot about the power of language in the way that the women and girls are portrayed in sport. Yeah, Hazy, it was last week. Um, it, it, it's exactly right. It's about the, the some of the language that's, that gets used. And some of this is fairly subtle um, in the way that you have to look at it. But there is a connection that they've discovered between... Uh, violence by men against women and girls and the way that uh, sport is reported. Uh, uh, so, and I looked at that as a, a long-time reporter of sport and I, I'd, I'd never made that connection at all, but it is there. So uh, it's just around the way that uh, matters of maybe uh, sexual assault by sportsmen of, of their partners or, or women that they know, the way that those reports are done so they're looking at all these things and it's 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 making us all think i think which liz i'm assuming you know simple things that we've never thought about the the power of language and just the, just the way uh men generally approach such matters uh, not only in media uh, but in boardrooms as well is is really the to get people thinking must be something that you're passionate about and and strongly advocating every time you talk about this yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just coming back to language, even talking about women's sport and men's sport, instead of that, we just talk about sport and then we have female athletes and male athletes. So in golf, we've got golf um, and then we've got women in golf and men in golf, but they're, they're um, equal athletes 
um, in the sport of golf, essentially. So it, it, language is really important because the thing about sport and why it's such a powerful lever for change is it's so unifying in a country like Australia. And it shifts cultures, it shifts mindsets. Um, and coming back to Blakey's point, the fact is that the way sport deals with um, athletes who sexually assault or um, perpetrate violence against women, the examples uh, and and the way those sporting organisations deal with that behaviour is really important in Australia because people look up to, you know, sporting athletes um, and, you know, they take their cues from that. So I'm really pleased to see that just over the last few years there's been a real shift. Um, some sports like NRL have moved to a um, no-fault stand-down policy and other things, but I'm encouraging more and more of that because if we want to be sport to be inclusive, equally inclusive as of women and girls as it is of men and boys, then it needs to be a safe and respectful place um, for us all to play. Just an example, Liz, uh, that, that would relate to golf. Um, I, I've got this theory, and I was talking to Shiloh Curtis from uh, Golf Australia last week about this. I don't like the use of the word ladies' golf um, or that expression. Mm -hmm. it, it should be women's golf. Ladies' golf is a very old, you know, antique um, antiquated expression, but everywhere you go, people talk about, and even the main tour, golf tour in the world is the Ladies Professional Golf Association. It should be women's, mm. and some of these things are gradually changing. For instance, we have the Women's Australian Open, which is which is the proper way to express it, but uh, it's going to take a while. But they're, they're the kind of subtle things that I guess we talk about with language, like a, the club that I play at in Melbourne has... Uh, one door that says members um, and then there's another door you know to the change room that says lady members you know so uh, it, it's not quite right I don't think um, do, no, do you, you, is that, right. does that make sense to you yeah yeah absolutely there's such great examples because what you're seeing there is and it's a fact with as with most sports they started they were often created by men for men and now the sport is largely run by men and what we've done is we've kind of poured in a few women and stirred without changing any of the existing structures and systems or language. Um, and the trouble with that is then women are just seen as an add-on. They're seen as kind of a second class to where the main game's being played, and that's with men, men in sport. So what we're trying to do, and I love the example of ladies, because ladies, in a sense, you're right, it is a you know, it's a word from the past, but also it um, conjures up a view that ladies need to be protected and they're a little bit fragile and whatever, Whether more, whereas now women is very much about women's empowerment, women as equal players with men. So I think the language is really important. And not only that, you know, for those clubs moving towards greater levels of gender equality, I mean, membership categories need to be gender neutral. They're just members. Um not you know lady members so i i think there's there's quite a deal of structural work that needs to be progressed but the wonderful thing for me and from where i sit is that golf australia is really um moving ahead you know it, it, at a pace um and as you mentioned rob shiloh curtis she's doing some terrific work out there going around the country talking to clubs about you know, some of the small steps they can take to ensure that the club is equally welcoming of women as it is of men. 
Yeah, absolutely, Liz. Um, and I know, you know, we've been, Shiloh's been running the National Vision 2025 Roadshow. Uh, she's reached out to over 1,500 golf club leaders at nearly 500 golf clubs or, or golfing bodies um, with, with many presentations on exactly what you're talking about and, uh, and more. You know, things like um, the type of environment that exists, the um, flexible membership options, um, you know, just all the, a lot of the, the things are around unconscious bias as well, you know, that people just don't even consider. So that, that awareness, um, you know, is really getting through the golf industry and Shiloh has, has led that strongly. You're right on that because... Sorry, Lizzie, you go for it. Sorry about that. Sorry, I was just going to say, you're right on that because there's things that um, we've just taken for granted and one of the things that I know in golf is that clubs have traditionally held male-only competitions on the weekend where kind of women golfers are relegated to during the week. Now, that clearly came about because women were less likely to be in paid work and the weekdays were equally okay for them to play golf. But, you know, the way, the way men and women's lives are now has so totally shifted that I think there needs to be a rethink about a number of the um, key assumptions which underpin how the competition runs, when games are played, those types of things. And I know that um, Golf Australia is really on the case on that. Rob, it must be um, pleasing to you to see or to hear Liz, who's seen the best and the worst practices around the, the country and the world, to hear her say that golf is taking positive strides like that. Oh, absolutely, Mark. Um, yeah, and, and we've got a long way to go, as you know, but, uh, but Liz is right. We have, uh, we have made a lot of ground. I remember um, easily you know, five, maybe 10 years ago, you, you, there was a conversation around whether women could even play on a Saturday. And, you know, that's an, an absurdity now that that, that that shouldn't happen. So um, so things are changing, um, but we've just got to keep going. So it is, it is wonderful to have that acknowledgement from Liz. Um, but, yeah, we've got to, we've got to keep going because we've got a lot, a lot of work to do. I want to ask you, Liz, um, how the average bloke listening to this um, and that, you know, potentially someone going to their club this weekend or or just, you know, maybe working alongside um, a heap of women in their, their own workplace or even just around the home, how can they get involved with male, championship cha- male champions of change and do what many of us believe to be just the right thing? Yeah, it's such a great question. Um, and I think uh, there's a whole variety of ways to get involved with Male Champions of Change. Male Champions of Change has a great website where they publish all their strategies. But I think it's about taking some of the techniques that they've developed and bringing it out um, into the areas of influence that individual men have. Um, and if I just give you one example of that. So you're walking into your golf club um, on Saturday for your game and you're looking around and you're saying, well, Wait a tick. Women make up 50% of Australia's population. Why aren't I seeing 50%, um, you know, here uh, teeing off? Or, of course, this is if you're not playing, playing in a men's only competition. But, you know, you start asking the question 50-50, if not, why not? And it allows you to, it's almost like putting on a pair of glasses and seeing the world in a totally different way because it enables you to identify where the barriers are to women's equal progression with men in any sector, but particularly in the sporting sector. 
And once you've done that, you can identify, oh, well, maybe that's because we're not scheduling it properly or maybe it's because we're not bringing enough good talent into the female talent into the administration of the game. There's so many ways that women can contribute to sport. So I always think that's that's a really um, important one. The other thing I'd say is just bringing it back to the family because I believe that gender equality starts in the family and it. It starts because our children learn, our um, young young kids learn from the interactions they see between men and women in their own family. So how respectful are they? Um, how do you treat each other? Because, you know, what you model, whether it's in a same-sex or opposite-sex relationship, your children will take into their lives. And I think, you know, every one of us can just start off at that point. That'd be my second thing. My third thing is if people are really interested in male champions for change, you can start to roll out a similar strategy within your golf club or within your workplace, just getting men really deeply engaged in understanding gender equality, in having conversations with women about gender equality and just, you know, picking two or three things that the workplace or the golf club could do. Liz, this is just so important in the context of golf that we working because you know the way i look at it it's not hard because uh when you really just sit down and think about it like that it's it's such an opportunity for golf um Mm. to get this right and look at all the new you know people we could draw to golf if we if we pull down those barriers that we know have been there you, I couldn't agree more. I mean, what a fabulous sport is golf. I mean, you don't have to be the total elite athlete to have fun playing golf. Anyone can have fun playing golf. I love playing golf with my son. It's a beautiful um, opportunity that we have together. I have to say he's way better than me. Um, but I think, yeah, if, if we can just look around, you know, the participation, how are we going to make it equal participation? And I know... Um, Golf Australia has been doing some great things with some of the new My Golf Girls Only programs because one of the things we know is that um, many girls um, would prefer to play and learn with other girls initially and you can't be what you can't see. So if I can see um, other fabulous female golfers and how many do we have here in Australia? I mean, even just starting with people like Minji Lee and Hannah Gree, Catherine Kirk. I mean, really fantastic. So I can see that golf is a welcoming sport for me i just need the pathways to help me get in there yeah i think i think we've turned a corner now before we let you go i, I just want to ask you whether you've uh, have you got your speech to the un general assembly prepared <laughs> and what what are you what are you planning to talk about do you want to give us a little yeah. um, exclusive? Uh, the two-second two version, yeah, the pre, pre-version. Now, it's a wonderful opportunity because it'll, um, it, the General Assembly, as you know, is bringing together all the leaders of nation states and the world together. And my presentation will be about how far the world's come on gender equality and women's rights over the last 25 years. And in fact, I'm dedicating my remarks into the General Assembly to all the girls born 25 years ago, um, everywhere in all their diversity, and really asking the question, you know, were the promises that were made at their birth, have those promises been delivered on by the world leaders? And the fact is they have in a number of areas. Women's education's progressed. Um, women's politi- political participation, it's a doubling of the number of women in parliament. Um, you know, there are many laws across the world where violence against women is criminalised. But there's 
still so much um, so much further to go. And, the, and one of the issues is at the minute with COVID-19, it is having a disproportionately negative impact on women. The burden of care is increasing, the levels of violence against women are increasing and whatever. So I'm making a very strong call to action to the leaders of the world to recommit to the vision we had 25 years ago, which interestingly was probably the high point for women's rights across the world and to continue to to um, make progress and move forward. I'm not sure if there's, uh, you know, the equivalent of Hansard or something in the United Nations, Liz, but it'd be pretty sweet for us if you could somehow sneak inside the ropes in there and just give us a boost on the, uh, on the global scale. Yeah, I'll try and do that. I'll put tennis, uh, uh, golf Australia in there as well, inside the ropes. I'll, I'll make a call to the world's leaders to get on to Inside the Ropes podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, we that'd be fun. That. Yeah, no, thank you. That'll that, go down beautifully, I reckon. Rob, that should see me, uh, you know, entitled to another couple of uh, terms here of tenure at Inside the Ropes, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, forever. You'd have a forever job. <laughs> uh, we really appreciate your time. It's, um, you know, sometimes we, we tend to, to gloss over the important parts of golf in favour of the action on the course. But, uh, I, you know, we, we're thrilled to have you on today, Liz. And I think the message is very simple and from... I'm assuming from my perspective, one last thing to ask you is if you could imagine as a bloke, again, uh, treating everyone else around you like you would want your daughter to be treated, would that be a fair enough um, assessment? I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's a really great uh, test. You know, if, if you wouldn't be happy for your daughter to be part of that conversation or part of that workplace culture, then you know you've got a lot of work to do. Thank you so much, Liz, and, and Rob, we really appreciate both your time. Thank you so much, uh, and thanks for joining us on Inside the Ropes. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Let's go back Inside the Ropes with Golf Australia. Welcome back to Inside the Ropes, and Blakey, what a delight to have Liz Broderick on, not to mention uh, Rob Armore, but um, she's just got such a, a bright vision for the future and not, not affected by what's happened in the past. Exactly right, Hazy, and uh, it's so important for golf that that issue of uh, you know we, where we talk about all the time of you know twenty percent of golfers in Australia are women, and it's it's not high enough, and so we you know we have to work on that. Yeah, we do, uh, and one of the ways we're doing that is get into golf. Uh, so perfect little segue there, as far as I'm concerned. Get into golf is Golf Australia's new adult beginner program to fast track new golfers onto the course. Uh, a five-week program. It teaches the basics in a fun and inclusive environment. And Blakey, already in just a few months of the program being launched, we have Get Into Golf Centres popping up around the country, but we need more. So if you're involved with a club or facility and are yet to check out Get Into Golf, what we're doing is encouraging you to head to golf.org.au forward slash get into golf, or one word, get into golf, where you can get all the details on how to become a Get Into Golf Centre and if you're quick, your club or facility might be eligible for a $250 grant to put towards marketing of the program. There's only a small number of those grants left, so uh, be quick, get into golf. And are we going with our reads? You want me to do mine? Yeah, you go uh, for your life. I want to talk about my golf. My golf's the uh, kids' inclusion program, uh, participation program, uh, which is, of course, back up and running and has been for quite some time. So at the start of Term 4 approaching across the country, now's the perfect time to get your child into my golf. 
Australia's national introductory program for kids aged 5 to 12 years, both boys and girls. My Golf is the ideal way for your child to learn the basics of golf and have a lot of fun along the way. Programs adhere to COVID safe practices. Head to mygolf.org. Sorry, I'll take that back. Golf.org.au backslash mygolf to find a program near you and sign up in time for the start of term four. Hazy? As a few people in South Australia, Blakey, you did that several years ago, who have made hay while the sun shone uh, in the beautiful state of South Australia this week. Yeah, it's uh, the South Australian amateur this week. So they had a, uh, a field of 90 men's and men's and women's at uh, Mount Osmond Golf Club in the south, or just outside Adelaide South Side. Uh, border issues have played havoc with national events. As you know, the Australian amateur was, was deferred uh, for a little while just last week, I think it was. and uh, But they've managed to get the South Australian amateur on and uh, the stroke play section was won uh, on the women's side by Sarah Wilson, who would be familiar to uh, you and many other people in golf. Sarah is from Pelican Waters in Queensland and is uh, most famous for having qualified and played in the Queensland Open, the Isuzu Queensland Open earlier this year against the men in which she uh, only just missed the cut, I think, by a shot. So she shot 72-71. I was talking to her earlier today, and she said she had a five-putt during the first round, but she still won, she the, really? won the stroke. Yeah, she hit it on the green on the par 4 17th on the first day, uh, was above the hole, and she five-putted it, took a seven, then drove it out of bounds on the 18th. Uh, she was on fire before that, so she's. But anyway, she's ended, ended up winning Sarah Wilson nineteen and Ben Layton, who's from the Glenelg Club, won the men's stroke play sixty seven seventy three. He's a twenty one year old. He's been in the South Australian uh, programs for a while and just recently dropped out of those programs. So he's hope, hoping that'll get him back uh, in favour with the authorities. And they've got the uh, match play section later this week with the finals on Friday at. Mount Osmond, and I did want to mention the Gary Player Classic in Queensland. That was uh, during the week, and uh, sorry, last week, uh, but after we recorded uh, or you recorded the podcast, Zach Maxwell from uh, Virginia Golf Club, a 20 year old, won the main uh, sort of under 21 section there. He's had a few goes at it, Zach, uh, and he's 20 years old, so it was his last opportunity, and he did win that. Travis Robbie from Southport won the a 16-17 age group, and Kai Komulainen from Emerald Lakes won the under-15s. And uh, while we're doing our bits and pieces, I did want to mention uh, a very famous golfer uh, left us uh, over the last few days, and it happened to be a friend and uh, colleague of ours, Dean Jones, uh, who was, yeah. I believe, four-time club champion at Romsey Golf Club on the north side of Melbourne, outside of the fact that he's one of Australia's finest cricketers ever. Um, I knew Dino very well. Uh, I, was, I sort of toured with him uh, as a cricket writer and uh, I never played golf with him, but he absolutely loved golf. And in fact, um, I sat down with him and had a coffee once, Hazy, and he wanted me to help him write a, a coaching, cricket coaching book. And it was based on a Jack Nicholas uh, book that he used to carry around which had little diagrams and and cartoons of how to grip the club and you know sorry how to grip the cricket bat and how to do this and how to do that so he was absolute golf tragic do you know and it's yeah, yeah. um it was a big shock um and you know uh i have to send sympathies to his family he's got 
two young girls and a, and a wife there, and uh, it's a tragedy. But uh, uh, farewell to Dino. Yeah, well said, Blakey. I did have the chance to play a couple of programs with him over the years. Uh, I had a lot of fun with him and Jason Norris at an event at uh, the old Eagle Hawk Golf Club in Central Victoria many years ago. He just seems to me like he just... Cricket came, I wouldn't say so easily, but so easily to him in comparison to everyone else at least. And uh, he couldn't figure out why golf perhaps wasn't, um, why he couldn't climb to the very top of the mountain as he has in cricket. But he was fascinated by the sport and obviously got to turn professional and was was very, very, very good player, um, which is amazing in two sports. But I know it challenged him right till the till the end, unfortunately. I think he, I think he got down to one. He don't think he got to scratch, but he got down to one, and he did go as you just mentioned through the processes of turning professional. And the PGA, I know, were were helping him and fast tracking him because he wanted to play in some senior events at the very least. Mm. Uh, he then had a rules snafu um, at some event where he signed for the wrong score, I believe. Um, I don't know whether some of the pros who'd had to go through, you know, a longer, you know, traineeship and that. Um, were that welcoming of him? I'm not too sure, but he ended up yeah. dropping out of that and uh, letting that go. But at one stage, he uh, he was talking about turning pro and playing a lot of events. So, yeah. uh, a yeah, great right. golf lover and advocate of golf. Yeah, true, true. Now, Blakey, we need to make mention of this, the Aussies around the world. Um, big shout to Harrison Endicott on the Corn Ferry Tour, um, who played four great rounds in this. Uh, in the 60s, finished 12 under in a tie for eighth at the Wichita Open in Kansas. Um, Cam Percy, uh, speaking of Dean Jones, he wrote a great story about that. Finished tied eighth uh, in um, the Dominican Republic on the big PGA Tour. Matt Jones and Rian Gibson also faring very well there. Uh, Robin Choi, Stefan R made the cut in the, on the Symmetra Tour. But the big, de- I guess, developments from an Australian perspective, Blakey, this week, were on the European tour um, in the Irish Open. I'm not sure what you saw of it, but it was a pretty good effort by a handful of young Aussies. Yeah, Maverick Ancliffe uh, finished third. Um, I think it's his second good result in in a, in a row, but he actually, this is his best result on the European tour, which is a great performance by Maverick, who we know has won several times on the PGA Tour China in the past, and he's got himself over to Europe, and he's starting to play really well. He actually had a chance to win it, but just got overtaken at the end by uh, John Catlin, an American who's won two of the last three tournaments. And Lucas Herbert, who finished seventh, Hazy, I noticed on the uh, race to Dubai standings, uh, he's number seven in Europe at the moment. So the top 60 uh, playoff in Dubai in the in the Tour Championship in December, which is an $8 million event. And Lucas, because on the back of his win in Dubai earlier this year, of course, is going to be in that field. So some good things happening for him. And it's great to see Lucas and Maverick playing well in Europe. True, true. And just a note there, Lucas, as you said, seventh. Scott Hend was back among it at tied 11th. And Jason Scrivener just keeps going with his consistent results in Europe. Tied 25th. And Jake McLeod also made the cut. Blakey, anything else you want to put on the table? It's been a, a very busy show. It's interesting, Hazy. The uh, the American tour is is you know c- continues to roll along. It just never lets up. We've got six weeks until the Masters. Um, and to be perfectly honest, I've been watching Europe a bit more closely, and I'll probably be watching the LPGA a bit closer this week. They had a week off 
last week. But some of the bigger European events are coming up. You've got the Scottish Open this week at the Renaissance Club, which Tom Doak did. That's where the women played the uh, Scottish Open as well. Uh, one thing that did jump into my I, you know, come across my desk the other day was that Sergio Garcia dropped out of the top 50. I don't know whether you saw that. It's the first time Sergio's been outside the top 50 since 2011. So nine years in the top 50 and he's just ticked outside. So he's just having a bit of a quiet time, isn't he? I guess since he won the Masters, he's been pretty quiet. That's true, and it's hard to see uh, that trend reversing any time soon. But then again, we didn't see him winning the Masters either, so you never know. He's been such a great player. That's a, that's an amazing statistic, actually, for a decade in the in the top flight. Uh, thanks, mate. I really appreciate you being Mr. September and just bailing us out here. So it's uh, very good of you to do that, and hopefully we'll see you back next week and maybe even more. Thanks, Hazy. Good to see you. Thank you. That's Inside the Ropes 183. We'll be back to do it all again next week. Thanks very much.